On an evening in early December 2018, the young CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange reportedly dies while on his honeymoon in India. This death is not announced to customers for another month. And when they're told Gerald Cotton is the only person to hold the passwords to their funds, conspiracy theories grow, leaving some to wonder, could Gerald Cotton still be alive? Honeymoon, moving the body, all the missing money. It was like, but what happened? A Death in Cryptoland. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In the movie The Truman Show, there's a moment when the main character's carefully constructed world starts to fall apart. Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, doesn't realize that his ordinary life is actually a giant studio set populated by actors until he starts to grasp that it's all a lie. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other cocos. This is the best. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Well, you're having a nervous breakdown. That's what's happening. You're part of this, aren't you? The investigative journalist, Susanna Breslin, can relate. Shortly after she was born, her parents signed her up to be, as she calls it, a human lab rat, part of a longitudinal study of personality traits in children, one that she would be part of for the next 30 years. She tells her story in a new memoir, Data Baby, My Life in a Psychological Experiment. Susanna Breslin is in our Los Angeles studio. Susanna, hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. When did your life as a psychological experiment begin, as you understand it? Well, you know, I think you can date it back to before I was born. In the late 60s, my father was a poetry professor at UC Berkeley. My mother was an English instructor. And because my father taught at the university, they got word of this exclusive laboratory preschool run by the university called the Harold E. Jones Child Study Center. Um, it had a years-long waiting list, and it was largely attended by the children of the university's faculty and staff. It was a great preschool. It was convenient. But the children uh, were also studied by researchers at the university who were, you know, looking at uh, early childhood development. When I was born, my parents uh, submitted an application, uh, and then I was accepted, and then three or four years later showed up for my first day of preschool. That application went in, as you understand it, when you were six and a half hours old. Well, that's what I originally believed. Yeah. That's what I was told. And that was sort of like the the narrative that I had been told for as far back as I could remember. And, you know, I think there was a kind of potency to it almost as if I was sort of, you know, destined to be in this study. This, or is who you, this is who you were from the moment you were born. Yeah, there's many ways in which myself and the study are sort of inextricably linked. And even to this day, I have a hard time sort of parsing um, myself as separate from the study. The study tracked a cohort of more than 100 students. What, what, as you understand it, what was it trying to do? So at the time, um, Jack and Jean Block, who were the study's principal investigators, um, conceived of the study, there was this uh, paradigm crisis in personality psychology. And the question was really, 
um, is human behavior guided by personality traits or is it really shaped by the situations in which we find ourselves? And the answer at that time was very unclear. So the blocks had this very ambitious, groundbreaking idea, what, which was, look, we can prove personality traits shape human behavior and remain relatively stable over time by studying a group of kids from early childhood and well into adulthood. So that's really what they were were trying to prove. If you study a child, can you essentially predict who that child will grow up to be? What what was that study like? What kind of data were they collecting about you? Well, they referred to it as lots of data, the acronym LOTS. They were looking at sort of basic facts of our lives. They were also observing us. They were also testing us. And they were also gathering data from us through one-on-one interviews. The preschool itself is a really fascinating place. It was designed by an architect named Joseph Escherich, and it was made for spying on children. Made, so for, ha- sorry, made for spying on children. Exactly. It's not strange at all. Continue. (laughs) It has these mirror-twing classrooms, and there's a hidden observation gallery between them. So the researchers could go into this observation gallery and and watch us and, you know, listen to us um, while we were playing in the classrooms. Um, with and and we would have no idea. Um, in another building, there were these individual testing rooms where we would be brought for our one-on-one assessments. And those rooms had one-way mirrors and then um, eavesdropping devices, so you could you know go stand outside the testing room and also observe these sessions. When did you realize? What was your first memory of of, of knowing, or at least having the feeling that that something was going on, that you were being watched? So after the preschool, we the cohort continued to be studied, but we all kind of went our separate ways in our own individual lives. But we would be brought back to Tolman Hall on the UC Berkeley campus to be assessed at these key developmental stages. So when I was around seven, I recall being in one of the experiment rooms talking to one of the researchers who was asking me, um, you know, about my life and and my relationship with my parents and my sibling and who I thought I might grow up to be. There was a bowl of candy between us, mm. and he asked me if I wanted some. I was actually quite hungry because I'd been brought there after school. But for some reason, I said no. I think I sensed that it was a test. Not long after, he left the room, and I was so hungry, I jumped across the table to sort of dive for the candy, accidentally knocked over the bowl. Candy went bouncing across the table. I was mortified. I started grabbing the candy and shoving it in my mouth. And then I looked across the room and there was a mirror. And I somehow sensed that somebody was behind the mirror and somebody was watching me. It's like the, it's like the marshmallow test with, with candy. Exactly. And clearly I, I failed. So like that kind of delayed. Can you can you wait? You know, what does it say about you if you have one right now versus you can have more if, if you wait? Right. And years later, I actually um, spoke to one of the researchers and told the story of what happened. And he says, oh, yes, absolutely. We were we were testing your ability to delay gratification. I mean, I, we played that little clip from The Truman Show and, and the the beginning of your book, the epigraph in your book is a quotation from the Truman Show. Is that what your life felt like? Um, 
You know, I think I share some commonalities with Truman. I also live in the city of Bur- of Burbank, and Truman's last name was Burbank. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I think there's there are some differences. Truman did not know that he was being um, observed for the bulk of his life. And uh, I, I did at a certain age understand that I was part of a study. I think that there. One thing I share with Truman is that there was a point at which I understood there was sort of another dimension to my experience, and when I had to confront that other piece, sort of look behind the curtain, it led to a kind of personal crisis. Because, you know, when reality is not what you think it is, it can be very disconcerting. And writing this book was kind of pulling back the curtain on the study. For example, you know, understanding that in the study, I had a number, I was 758. And that was, it's a little strange. Am I a person? Am I a data point? Or am I a number? What did it do to you to know that you were part of this study? I mean, part of this is when you, when you're a teenager, um, there's a weird pressure in some ways that you describe feeling because it's like you're special that you're part of this this secret club and that you're being studied and and you might be as you said it was it was your destiny you were taken there you believed but when you were six and a half years old to be enrolled in the, in in this thing, what did that do to you as you were growing up? Being in the study for me has been a bit of a double-edged sword. Largely, it's it, the experience of being studied was beneficial, or at least that's how I perceived it for most of my life. It made me feel special. My home was a kind of cold place. My parents were intellectuals. They were busy with work, and I felt isolated and spent a lot of time alone in my room Um making up stories. And I think I reached to the study in my mind as a way to feel special. And I absolutely felt special when I was participating in the study. You had the undivided attention of an adult who was interested in absolutely nothing but you. And I think it was very affirming in a in a very significant way throughout my life. Particularly coming um, from a family where, as you said, I mean, it's cold. You describe your mother as perhaps not being entirely interested in being a mother and and your father is being very not distant in some ways but it like hard to reach yeah my mother would sometimes say i don't want to be a mother anymore and she i think you know she was an intellectual and a and eventually an english professor in her own right and it was i think motherhood and marriage uh, felt like a tax i think the flip side of that sense of feeling special was also feeling um, a pressure to live up to that. And so there was a sense, I'm here because I'm I'm special and I have to perform that way. I have to be exceptional. I have to not fail these tests because otherwise maybe I won't be able to come back again. You know, the, the business of a child is to sort of play and understand how, who they are and I think the study um, in some ways interfered with that. That kind of came to a boil in some ways when you were in high school, right? I mean, early high school, and then things kind of corrected themselves a little bit, but you had a rocky start in, in high school. Sure. When I was in high school, I was acting out. I was experimenting with drugs. Um, my parents had gotten divorced when I was 10. I ran away from home. I was being promiscuous. And... While those things were 
really difficult for me personally, they were also great fodder for the study. Um, a lot of the, the facts of my life were things in which they were very interested in studying. At that time, the divorce rate in um, America was going through the roof. So they had this front row seat to how is divorce shaping these children. They were interested in, you know, how like our drug use did how did that relate to our you know mental well-being and they were also interested in um depression they noticed that a certain type of girl in the cohort became quite depressed in adolescence and it was a girl like me who when she was young was you know smart and confident but when she hit puberty and realized she didn't sort of fit into the stereotype of what a girl should be. She wasn't demure. She was strong. Um, she had a kind of crisis and fell into a depression, which is, I think, a lot of what happened for me. You could imagine people listening to this thinking that that sounds really cruel of adults. To That doesn't sound like there's a lot of empathy and compassion in that. Uh, it sounds like it's it's very clinical. And absolutely. And it's complicated, right? So there was... When I was writing this story, there was a pain for me of looking at it again and saying, why didn't they intercede? They were watching me self-destruct in my adolescence at the same time that this wasn't, you know, a study that involved intervention and that wasn't what they did. Mm -hmm. So I think I tend in hindsight to sort of see it regardless as it was my experience of it was as a kind of lifeline because even when I would fall into these sort of self-destructive episodes there was this sense that the study was was somehow there for me you know my parents were atheists and I grew up you know I didn't have that sense growing up of oh there's a higher power or there's someone watching over me or there's some sort of meaning to my life and the study gave me a lot of that in a way it was a kind of religion in my head there's there's some person who's watching over me through all all of this and and being in the study itself made me feel like I had a higher purpose how do you forget your favorite person in the world 30 years ago my 14-year-old brother was killed by a speeding police car. And just a week or two after he died, I started to forget him. But what if I could get my memories back? I'm Alex McKinnon, and Sorry About the Kid is a new four-part series about what happens when trauma and memory collide. It felt like something was being torn out of my brain. Just somebody just tore a piece of flesh out. Sorry About the Kid is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. What happens when the study ends? Eventually, you you age out of the study, right? Yeah. Um, so when I was in my early 30s, the study came to an end. I think that was a bit bittersweet. You know, at how, that how does point, it end? I mean, is there you talk about this a bit in the book? But just explain, mm -hmm. like, the, do you when, when it ends? Is there you know, thank you very much, and here's your certificate, and away you go? I mean, <laughs> what is the end of something that means so much to you and that you're such a huge part of? At that point, we were the cohort. We were so all over the globe at that point, that they ended up assessing us through these questionnaires that they sent us through the mail. I guess it kind of went out with a bit of a whimper. Um, and it was kind of up to us to sort of 
I don't know, put a bookend on it. I think in my experience of it was to be glad I had participated in it. I had certainly seen, you know, scientific papers that had been produced out of the my participation in the study and, and to sort of understand it was impactful. You were somebody who was always interested in, in asking questions, which is, I mean, it's no surprise you became a journalist and you went on to do some, some groundbreaking work. Um, some of the stuff that you did was covering the sex industry. And it, this is a side note, but you were a correspondent on a program that you describe as 60 Minutes on Viagra. Yes. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> um, Playboy uh, used, the company Playboy used to have a TV show called Sexetera. And it, it really was like 60 Minutes on Viagra. There was, you know, maybe six 10-minute uh, episodes or segments for each episode. It was an hour-long show. And I was like an on-camera reporter, an X-rated Leslie Stahl, except I, I, I was one of the reporters that kept my clothes on. And they would send us all around the world to cover these crazy stories from like, you know, the red light district in Amsterdam to a you know, fetish club in London to a porn star resort in Mexico and it was just um, a really sort of crazy, extraordinary experience. Do you think there was anything that was part of the study that drew you into the stories of the people that you profiled? Not so much in that, but the, in the work that you did in covering the sex industry, which, as I said, that was the, the work that you did and, and when you were doing it was, was groundbreaking for a lot of people. Well, the researchers, I think, in some ways taught me how to be a journalist. You know, they were doing close study. They were trying to intimately understand another person, and they were trying to construct the story of someone else's life, which is a lot of what I do. Try to understand why they were doing what they were doing. Exactly. And in a very intimate way, you know, we didn't hold a lot back. I told the study things that my parents never knew. Mm. Um, and in some ways, my researchers knew me better than my parents did and maybe better than I knew myself. As for why I chose to focus on sex, one idea that I've had is that there was clearly this element of voyeurism to being studied. You know, there's a hidden person watching through this one-way mirror while I perform. And when I started writing about sex and the adult industry in particular is something I focused a lot on a lot on that. I, that's very much about voyeurism. Growing up, I had been the subject, the one being looked at. But when I became an adult, I became the one who was looking. And I think there was an element of sort of mastery in, in my doing that. In control. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, part Absolutely. of that is, is expressed as well in, in the work that you do to go back and study the study itself. Why did you want to do that? What, what were you looking for when you decided, I was part of this thing and I need to understand it more? Sure. When I was 43, I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, but it was a rare and aggressive type. And my oncologists were really interested in me because I had this you know, unique type of cancer. And there was a day when I was sitting, um, getting a chemo infusion, and one of the oncologists came in and said, hey, can I bring in these residents? And they all sort of stood around me while he presented my case. And there was something about it that was very familiar. Mm -hmm. I think I essentially, you know, 10 years after the study had ended, became a human lab rat again. Having to confront my mortality and that experience got me thinking about the study again. And I thought, 
thought, you know, these people, there must be some file somewhere in some filing cabinet in some basement under UC Berkeley. There must be a file that contains all my data that that will tell me the story of my life. At that point, I was married and living in Southwest Florida. And I was felt very lost and thought, was this where I was supposed to be? In an abusive this- relationship and, and not enjoying where you were? I was not happy. And I felt trapped. And I also felt like I was a supporting character in someone else's life. And so I think I kind of thought, you know, if I can find this file, I can understand who I'm supposed to be. And that set me out on that on a journey. It eventually led to the implosion of my marriage. It was almost like the study had saved me when I was a young person, and I, I think I kind of reached out to it again to save me from another very difficult situation. What did you learn about who you are by going through that information that, that had been collected on you? Before I started this investigative process, I think I did not understand how impactful the study had been on my life, that it had absolutely shaped who I was, that I was a kind of living testament to the observer effect, which, as you know, is the idea that observing something changes that which is observed. Mm -hmm. And that is interesting to think about in the context of a scientific study, and especially a study that would claim to be, you know, non-interventionist. They were trying to be objective. They were simply trying to be observers of our lives. But in many ways, they, at least in my case, they shaped my life. And I think it also, in some ways, made me more sort of look askance at science. There's some element of smoke and mirrors to science, how... Every time I see another study coming out that says, oh, well, we've concluded X, I sort of roll my eyes because these aren't just data sets. There's always a person involved in analyzing the data, and they're subjective. You've you've said a couple of times that in some ways this was a really mixed experience. I mean, do you look back on it now with regret that you were part of it? are Are you happy that you were part of it? Yes. I have struggled with anxiety and depression for most of my life. And there's been times when I've been suicidal. And I think the its experience of looking back at this made me wonder if um, I hadn't had the study, if I would not have survived the experiences that I did. Oh. So I think um, it's part of the study is part of why I'm here. It's part of why I'm still alive. It's part of how I survived um, all the different things that I've been through. You said that we are now all data babies in a global <laughs> psychological experiment. How do you look at what we're in right now? I mean, we live in a world where all of our information, and it's not two-way mirrors, but it's just all being hoovered up. Um, <laughs> by the devices we use, the lives we lead, the things we're interested in, the algorithm knows all, and it goes somewhere into a cloud, um, and it, that's being used and analyzed and helping to shape us in some ways. How do you look at, at the world that we're in right now, based on, on what you've gone through? I think I see myself as something of a canary in the coal mine for what we're seeing today, where there's this 24-7 surveillance capitalism Right now, we're all being watched constantly, and our 
data is being collected um, every day. And while there's a lot of parallels into that, between that and my experience, the circumstances are very different. My um, principal investigators were, you know, interested in science and enlightenment. And the reason these organizations are collecting our data now is it's done in a clandestine way, and it's also purely for the purpose of profits. I think people are not thinking enough about how this surveillance is really shaping our lives. The algorithms are not just observing us, they're attempting to shape our behavior. And so the canary in the coal mine is meant to warn us. I mean, the whole point of that canary is to tell me <laughs> that something is coming and I need to be aware of it. What's the warning that you're giving? Yes, I am Cassandra. I think that when we don't look at how these circumstances are shaping us. We are not really the stewards of our lives. And we are allowing these external forces to shape our identities in ways that we're, we're not confronting. And if we can start thinking about how being surveyed and being tracked and having our data captured and monetized is is shaping our lives, then we have the ability to sort of free ourselves from it. Because if we don't look at it, we're just subjugated to it. You have an incredible life story. um, And it is really compelling in this book, but it's also just really great to talk to you about it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Susanna Breslin is the author of Data Baby, My Life in a psychological experiment. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.